Uh, okay. I've got um, I've got four shots of espresso in me and a holiday cup, so I'm feeling really good about myself right now. Oh, good, excellent. Yeah. Well, so, your beard's looking fierce too, so you should be pretty proud of that as well. Uh, I started I started no shave November uh, back in May. You know, okay. so I, I had to get a head start on it. Right. Right. <laughs> So uh, are you going to do the same, <laughs> Madura? Well, I choose not to participate in this, at least this year. But, but yeah, we have our team members uh, doing that. Yeah. Uh, November, November stuff is ongoing at Papa Nine. You know, a lot of my coworkers, uh, we all come from India, and it, it feels like 80s, 90s Bollywood coming back again when we all we see them all growing mustaches. It's a lot of fun. So we uh, make a lot of fun of each other. So. Well, while we could talk about beards and other hipster things all morning, what we're going to do instead is uh, get the show started. What do you think, Brent? I'm in. Let's do it. Okay. So the goal the goal of this show uh, is to kind of discuss the rapidly evolving world of infrastructure as a service and how these platforms work uh, and what the like the diversity of infrastructure as a service means to customers. Uh, additionally, we want to dig into different management techniques uh, and you know how these platforms. Uh, really benefit enterprises, right? So uh, at the end of the day, this is all about making cloud simpler. Uh, we always have a lot of different customers on, or, or you know, uh, sorry, people on who talk about different ways that they're doing cloud. Um, this is yet another opportunity to kind of look at a different way of looking at it. Um, so today we have Madura, and Madura is with Platform 9. Did I get that? How, do, how, well, how did I do? You did well. Okay, That's great. Correct. You see, I didn't say your last name. You please, by all means, share your last name as well as what you do at Platform Nine. So my last name is Meskaski, um, and I am a co-founder and VP of product at Platform Nine. That's awesome. So we, uh, Brett, does a lot of research on you, Brett. Why don't you, why don't you give us a breakdown of kind of some of the things we figured out about her? <laughs> well, it's interesting, right? I mean, you, um, <clears throat> you and Suresh found co-founded uh, Platform Nine about three years ago. And it looks like you guys both came from VMware, and you guys both spent a, a significant portion of your time there uh, leading and developing products there. So kind of talk to us about your background, and then what led you to create Platform 9 Systems? Yep. So I spent, before starting Platform 9, I spent about um, seven plus years at VMware, primarily as a tech lead and architect as part of various products in VMware's management portfolio suite of products. Right, and uh, my co-founders have a very similar background. Um, so my co-founder, Big Lee, who is our chief architect, um, he was literally one of the first few that were handpicked by Diane Green, right, when she started the company, VMware. Um, and then we had the privilege of having him as our mentor when we joined VMware. Um, so when I joined the company, I joined the team that was being led by Big as the chief architect, and uh, my co-founders, Shirish and Rupak, were part of the same team. Um, so we had the pleasure of working together for all these years, uh, seven plus years, uh, which is something in general I highly recommend for uh, co-founders uh, who are looking to start a new venture, which is if you've had that prior experience of having worked together, nothing like it. Um, and so as part of being at VMware, we got a we got a great opportunity to interface with VMware's mid to large size customers, right? Um, as part of um, VMware's then flagship private cloud management product, which was uh, vCloud Director. 
Um, and that really got us exposure to what are the use cases as well as pain points that these mid to large size enterprise customers experience when they are looking to recreate an Amazon-like or a public cloud-like experience, but using infrastructure that they control. Um, and that's really where um, some of the ideas behind Platform Line started or originated as well. Cool. And and you know your 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 background also. Um, I don't know when you com you you completed your your master's of computer science specifically in databases and distributed systems. And I'm gonna name drop from Stanford. So obviously you're incredibly smart. But when at what point did you um, did you pursue that? And how did you apply it to either your time at VMware or uh, at Platform Nine? Right, so I um, I came here after doing my bachelor's in India and in Pune um, to pursue master's, um, and I got the opportunity to join Stanford, which was probably um, you know the the best you could expect uh, when when you enter into a computer science master's program in general, right? And and I had I spent two fantastic years um, living on campus at Stanford and really mingling with the other students, uh, masters, bachelors, the PhD that were part of Stanford. Um, and really the sense that Stanford um, inculcates or, or promotes within all of its students is this whole notion of entrepreneurship, right? Or, or be becoming, being the next gen entrepreneurs. Um, so I had friends who started companies, who partnered with other MBA students and started companies even while um, we were pursuing masters. Uh, now, I wasn't part of that group at that time, um, but I still am friends with, or I have relationships with with those friends who, who have since started uh, some of the well-known companies in the Bay Area. Um, and so, the you know, studying at Stanford in general helps A, in understanding from bottom up what Silicon Valley is all about, right, which is the Valley is about um, uh, about uh, you know seeing these new sometimes crazy ideas really coming to fruition through a through a through multiple set of resources that are available to you right through virtual uh, through VC capital through other mentors through um, through these incubator funds a whole bunch of things. And so that really got instilled, you know, in, in me at least during my time at Stanford. And then VMware um, further helped kind of um, solidify that. Um, VMware was was is still a place which is full of the some of the brightest minds in the Silicon Valley. Um, and what in the way that helps is it it brings like-minded people together, and then you know ideas start flowing. Um, so I would say overall, um, I was fortunate to live the Silicon Valley experience since the time I came here. Um, um, and 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 that that's really helped me in general. So when you when you go to Stanford and you pick a master's like uh, com of computer science, databases, and distributed systems, were you interested in one of the two categories, or was it was there one that was like a focus? Because distributed systems seems like a really interesting thing to me, but you may have gravitated to databases by default, or was it like you had to get one and you got the other for free, or how did that uh, decision go through for you? Right. So Stanford has five, six, seven different focus areas that you can select as part of doing your master's, right? And database and distributed systems was one of them. Um, some of the other alternatives were uh, programming languages or information theory or a whole bunch of others, right? And this particular area was always of interest to me since my time uh, doing bachelor's, um, simply because... Um, you know, for various reasons, I was always interested in these massive distributed data processing systems or just distributed systems in general, um, you know, uh, 
databases such as Oracle, um, you know, which have been enterprise databases for a while, um, uh, you know, interested me. In, in, so that's the core of what, what I studied at Stanford. And then I got to apply some of that at Oracle. That's where I did my, my first job after studying at Stanford. And then that's where I was part of the, the database uh, team at Oracle. Um, and specifically, I worked as part of their, um, uh, you know, their logical volume manager equivalent component that, that Oracle provides. Um, and that's really where I got to put a lot of the theory that I learned at Stanford into practice as well. But, um, you know, in a nutshell, just processing of massive amounts of data, the transactional processing, you know, the the ACID uh, principles, et cetera, all, all of that really interested me. Um, so Stanford was a good opportunity to learn more about that. Yeah, that's awesome. And, and another thing that I found was just uh, recently, I think on the 1st of November, you got recognized by CloudNow as one of 12 leading women um, and, and the most innovative women in cloud technology. So I thought that was pretty cool. And, and because of that, you'll be presenting at Google headquarters um, in December. So talk to us a little bit about that and like kind of what CloudNow is and how that whole process is for you. Yeah, no, absolutely. I feel, um, certainly feel privileged to have um, received that recognition. Um, and CloudNow is about the, the initiative that tries to highlight or focus in general innovation that is happening in the, in the enterprise and, and cloud space, right? And it tries to highlight or focus um, women in this case who are, who are doing interesting work, work um, in that space. Right, and from our perspective, this is uh, platform line is really in 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 the, in the heat of things when it comes to cloud. Right, we started by bringing the cloud managed approach to enterprise infrastructure, which is something that wasn't done before, uh, which is managing enterprise infrastructure through a software as a service model. Um, so we we pioneered that model through uh, deploying OpenStack and Kubernetes as a service. Um, and so from from cloud now perspective, um, you know it's it's this kind of out-of-box approach to cloud computing or cloud management is is, is something that interests them. Um, and so, um, you know, it, 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 if you look at the other, some of the other women who have also been nominated as part of that, uh, Julia Austin is someone I really respect, and she also comes from VMware. Um, so it's, um, you know, it's a privilege to be part of that list. Awesome. Well, very cool. So we're going to skip to a segment called This Week in Tech History, and then we're going to dive into Platform 9 Systems. So uh, This Week in Tech History, actually on 14 November of 2006, Microsoft introduced the Zune. So if you uh, don't remember the Zune, um, it was a service and a piece of hardware. It was hailed as the iPod killer, and Microsoft actually killed it five years later. I personally had a Zune. I love the service. The hardware was shit, but the, the service was wonderful. Um, I think I paid, what, 30 bucks a month, and I got unlimited music, anything and everything I wanted, great selection. And I think that service actually teed up where a lot of other services have picked up since then. But for me, I thought that they did a good job. Did, did either of you have a, a Zune or the service? Start with you, Madura. I, I definitely remember um, reading about it, hearing about it, but I, I did not own it. I've been a... I've been an Apple fan girl since uh, since the time I got introduced really to the iPod. Uh, but so yeah, yeah. That happens. I I couldn't find any statistics on how actually how many Zunes were sold. They <laughs> they said that they didn't even reach 
like single digits in terms of market penetration. Um, so they did very, very poorly, but um, the service was good. I don't know. Brian, what are your thoughts on it, buddy? I've, I've also been an Apple fangirl for a long time, so I um, – I never actually got into the Zune, and and that's okay. Um, but you know, I you know, there's a lot of people who are big fans of it, and it made a, it had like a almost like a cult following. Um, mm-hmm. and so I just think that you you're destined to be in a cult. Yeah, and, I had the Gears of War Zune. It was wow, it was ridiculous. You had the special yeah. edition, even. Yeah, that today <laughs> that's like the Kickstarter edition of some really random. Uh, like if somebody actually made an MP3 player that no, like five people would buy, you would have had that one as well. Yeah. So I'm not even sure people even, you know, MP3 is almost an outdated comment, right? Like an audio player, like saying an MP3 player almost just made me feel embarrassed as if somehow I went out and bought a CD. So let's move on to actual modern technology and things that are cool. Um, So, you know, the way this podcast came about is uh, I was cruising through uh, VMworld and uh, I was wearing my, my backpack trying to get as much swag as possible so that my kids would love me when I got home. And uh, I stopped by a booth, and uh, I didn't actually look up. And I know I was looking at what they're doing, and it had a bunch of things around, you know, cloud automation and cloud as a service. And really, it it seemed like it was cloud management as a service. And I was like, this sounds like a fun podcast topic. So I probably interrupted somebody's sale where they're actually talking to a real customer and said, talk to me. We talked, and uh, here we are. So then I realized that it was Platform 9. And we've actually, I know people who've worked at Platform 9, and we've actually had Ken Hui on the podcast uh, around his new job. And so, you know, it was, I was like, well, that's a small world. That's really cool. So, you know, let's talk about what Platform 9 is and let's rewind a bit. So, when Platform 9 was started with you and your co founders, what were you, what were you guys really thinking about? What were y'all looking at as far as what was the problem you're trying to solve? And why did you decide you need to go make a startup besides, you know, getting famous and being on a TV show or whatever? Right. No, and that's a really important question. It was critical for us because, um, you know, during that time, we very seriously considered doing what we were looking to do inside VMware as well, right, which is where we were at at that time. Um, Where it really got started is during our time as architects or uh, tech leads as part of VMware's vCloud director. Right, which was then um, VMware's uh, flagship or primary product to give enterprises an alternative to going all public, uh, which is just started in its early stages, started becoming sort of a trend. Um, and so um, what we really saw firsthand is customers trying to utilize VMware's vCloud director and build private or hybrid clouds, uh, private at that time, hybrid wasn't really popular then, um, but really running into a whole bunch of challenges. Right, and then to recall a couple of conversations that we were part of, um, two of them that were really interesting from our perspective. One was where we were in this massive debugging session helping one of the large-scale customers identify and root cause a, a an issue that was stalling their production VMware deployment. Um, and we realized that the problem had since been fixed, right? It had been since fixed for past couple of years through some of the latest updated VMware's um, vSphere Plus product versions. Um, and so we recommended that to the customer. We recommended that they upgrade. Um, but to, to our surprise, 
surprised there was a lot of resistance in doing that upgrade and taking that that next version of the product, right? Which was, from an engineer's perspective, um, nothing can be more disheartening than hearing that a customer does not want to utilize some of the the latest innovation and and the cool technology that you spend so much effort in building, right? And then as we started digging deeper into why, it turns out that this was this was a trend amongst enterprise customers in general, which is don't don't upgrade unless you really have to because there is so much pain involved in in that upgrade process, right? And if you think about what cloud is, it's the complete opposite of that. Um, If you think of how Amazon or public cloud in general works, uh, changes get pushed few times or sometimes few hundred times. Um, And we realize that the only way to fix that is by delivering software as a service, right? Um, If you are to give a significant alternative to a public cloud-like experience to your customers, it has to bring out that as a service um, aspect to it. So that was one. And the other trend we were observing very strongly or, uh, you know, observing uh, the trend evolve in the enterprise customers is that open source was starting to become more and more and more predominant, right? We ourselves saw VMware internally going through the transition from Windows to Linux where developers were using all Windows and they transitioned to using all Linux. And then a lot of other enterprise companies were going through the same trends. Um, So we kind of married the two together, which is open source is going to eat the world and um, as a service is the only the best way to consume software, even for enterprise uh, customers. And so we figured these are significant enough trends that something can be built out of these. And uh, and we felt that this needs to this needs to happen as an independent company whose sole bread and butter is working around building this model. And that's kind of where uh, Platform Line originated. That's awesome. And so when, in my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, when you really looked at open source projects and the ones that you thought were kind of the, the ones that were most likely to succeed for your business, you kind of started with OpenStack, is that, or was there something else you started with that I just didn't read about? Right, no, that's correct. So we started with OpenStack, um, and OpenStack at that time was um, had gone through about a couple of years since its inception, and and, and really starting to pick up and show show signs of uh, of having massive growth in the enterprise uh, enterprise infrastructure space. Right, and, and as you look at the fundamentals of OpenStack, it's built to be this uh, distributed system. Every component is designed to scale um, horizontally, vertically, etc. Um, it's got cleaner separation in terms of interfaces and APIs. And so it was built with all the right principles. um, And it was starting to gain that mindshare amongst the mid to large size enterprise customers in terms of becoming that cloud platform that they could standardize on um, for uh, as an alternative to say going all proprietary with VMware or going all public cloud. And we saw that momentum, um, we could see that uh, momentum taking off and and, and really spreading amongst uh, the majority of uh, enterprise customers. So we, uh, from our perspective, that was absolutely the right platform to start with by offering it as a service. And so uh, now, uh, when you say offering it as a service, we'll get into that a little bit. When you started three years ago to go create kind of this, um, you know, essentially infrastructure management piece and all these things, is what you're selling today and what you're uh, kind of proposing to customers today your original idea? Or has there been evolutions of the product over time? Have you, you know, changed focus of like, as you've seen kind of what you're doing and what customers have pushed back on? Have you changed focus at all, or is this really the exact same story as when you kind of first wrote it down on the back of a napkin or whatever it was? Absolutely. So when we started the company, um, we 
there are certain things that we knew that we wanted to do, and then certain things evolved through the course of the startup journey itself, right? So we knew that we wanted to offer an as-a-service platform that is built using core open source popular technologies um, that let enterprises manage their infrastructure, um, manage both virtualized and containerized infrastructure, because containers were also relatively early in their journey at that time, although starting to take off in a very significant way. Um, so we wanted to offer that platform, which let them manage their um, VMs and their containers um, and their infrastructure, regardless of how it's spread across geographies. Right. So that was the high level trend that we wanted to play a significant role in. Um, now, the specifics evolved, meaning that we started with OpenStack, um, which which was something we were pretty certain we were going to start with. Um, but then earlier this year, we also started offering um, Kubernetes as a service. Right. And we didn't know at that time that Kubernetes was the framework or platform we we're going to choose to deploy as a service. But we knew that we wanted to do something significant in the container space as well. Um, so the details evolved, but 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 the vision has since um, remained pretty consistent. Okay, so um, just to kind of s- summarize what you said, you're you're basically running OpenStack and Kubernetes in a software as a service model. So customers bring their own gear, and you provide the management and orchestration layers as a service. That's exactly right. Yep. Okay, so talk to us about. Um, you know, really why this needs to be something as a service. Um, you know, I think we've all heard that that OpenStack, at least uh, in previous generations, and I would say even I just just today, um, has been a science experiment for minis and very tough and, re, you know, requires a lot of ponytails. So I can, I can generally understand why as a service makes sense, but why not just an automated layout of an OpenStack environment versus as a service? Right. No, good question, right? Because, um, you know, many times customers um, or in general, um, you know, there tends to be a perception that if you have an automated installer, that can take care of 90 plus percent of your problems, right? Meaning uh, if you have them, then why do you still need that as a service model? Um, and there is an important distinction that, that that's worth making there, right? Which is um, an automated deployment tool, et cetera, can get you up and running with your infrastructure. Um, but that's not even half part of your journey of that life cycle of that cloud infrastructure, right? Meaning once you get, an up, get it up and running, um, that's great. That's an important milestone. But now, on an ongoing basis, through the updates and security patches and fixes and upgrades of that that distributed cloud infrastructure, you as that customer or the ops team or the IT team within that customer environment needs to be maintaining, babysitting, managing that infrastructure and delivering a certain level of SLA to their internal customers throughout that life cycle, right? So getting up and running in an automated way is, is part of the journey, but really keeping keeping the lights on, keeping the infrastructure running tends to be many times the most important challenge that an enterprise needs to solve. And that's really where an as-a-service model shines. Right, and what an as-a-service model strives to deliver is you as a customer do not even need to be aware that an upgrade to your infrastructure might be happening behind the scenes. Right, to you, you consume it like you consume Salesforce, like you consume your Gmail, um, where your focus is on consumption, um, and someone else is taking care of everything. And that's the difference between, um, say, an automated deployment or installation uh, and an as-a-service model. Okay. Yeah. Thanks. Um, so. Then help me understand the 
the open stack from, you know i think uh, when we think of open stack we we think kvm right um, but you guys also integrate with with vsphere so talk to us about how those things actually work and then how you would have uh, kind of like how you would break out maybe the architecture right so some of these things would be in band management and someone will be out of band i would presume so kind of talk to us about how that works and if your service goes down what what does that mean and what are your SLAs surrounding that, really? Definitely. So, so OpenStack was designed to be um, able to manage diverse set of infrastructure. That right, that was one of the goals OpenStack had set for itself since beginning. Um, and hence, it today has drivers not only to manage Linux KVM, um, but also other popular hypervisors such as Zen, Hyper-V, as well as VMware vSphere. Right, so many times we also see this perception within customers that OpenStack means KVM, um, and the reality is far from it. Right, OpenStack is really that infrastructure layer that lets you manage your existing infrastructure in an automated way, in a public cloud-like way. Um, and so what we did is we did a couple of things. Right, uh, we noticed that the VMware drivers on the OpenStack side um, needed a needed a bit of uh, TLC, needed a bit of focus um, and, and added development to make those drivers more concrete, more robust um, to deliver the level of experience that um, you know that VMware customers expect, knowing what we know of VMware customer base. Um, so we did a lot of enhancements to those VMware drivers, which we are in the process of contributing back to the open source community. Um, and then the KVM drivers we had the we were able to just leverage out of the box, etc. Uh, and so the way the model works is OpenStack again does a really good good job of separating control plane from data plane. Um, and so we leverage that and we we run the control plane as a service, meaning the control plane is hosted somewhere outside of customer's data center. It can be co-located within the customer's data center as well, um, but really that choice is available to the customer. Um, if it's located outside of their data center, is located somewhere near the geographical region where their servers are living, hence there are no latency or other issues. Um, and then the data plane is all local to their infrastructure. So none of their data is actually leaving their infrastructure, but it's just some of the metadata. Uh, that's what the service portion, the control plane portion is tracking. Um, now, if the service goes down, it means that you're still able to operate and and, and and access your virtual machine so your business continuity is not disrupted. It means that for that period of time that the control plane might be down, you don't have access to performing some of the control operations. Um, but we promise a very high SLA to our customers, right? We promise about four nines of SLA to our customers, meaning we have put in place all the required, uh, re required distributed system principles that require checks and balances to make sure that our control plane actually does not go down, right? And that includes creating a very highly available uh, fault-tolerant, redundant deployment of the control plane and, and the, the database that is backing it um, across different availability zones, et cetera. Okay. Um, so I just quickly want to dig into uh, the integration with vSphere. So um, are you integrating with um, you know, with the the V realize or the you know the V cloud director, I guess which you which you poured your soul into for many many years, or do you not need that automation layer because it's already part of your control plane stack? And then what is that? Is it a, is it a SOAP or a REST or what's the what's the APIs that you guys are using? Mm -hmm. Right. So. You know, what you said later is exactly right, which is that we don't need to integrate with a vCloud director or a vRealize because in many ways, OpenStack is an alternative 
to them, right? Which is what we cloud director or we realize does is they sit on top of vCenter, which is VMware's lower level core management layer, which majority of VMware customers use, right? And those products, uh, those products provide a private cloud experience um, on top of that vSphere deployment, um, and OpenStack does the same thing. So when Platform 9 integrates uh, through OpenStack with a VMware vSphere environment, um, we leverage the OpenStack vSphere drivers, which connect directly to the vCenter environment. So essentially, if you have multiple vCenter servers, there will be one driver deployed per vCenter so to let you take in all of those, uh, you know, the servers and clusters, et cetera, from those different vCenter environments and bring them into OpenStack. Um, and then um, through that channel, uh, what that driver is really doing is translating the vSphere APIs, which tends to be the, you know, the traditional, the, the SOAP APIs, et cetera, into, um, into OpenStack so that the OpenStack consumer is still consuming the OpenStack REST APIs, right? And, and, and they're in many ways not even aware that this translation is happening behind the scenes because they're just consuming the Nova instances and the neutron networks or the Cinder volumes, and, and, and they're doing all of that through their API level automation or CLI level automation, or they're using it through the UI. Uh, but that's really where the translation happens behind the scenes. And then every uh, VMware cluster, um, DRS enabled cluster becomes a hypervisor from OpenStack's perspective. Makes a lot of sense. So you mentioned this a little bit earlier, uh, so I, I wanted to bring it up uh, in a different context. There's sometimes a lot of misconceptions about certain types of products and where they fit. For instance, you said, you know, going to OpenStack doesn't necessarily mean throwing the baby out with the bathwater on your VMware environment. Uh, similarly, you've got a as-a-service or a cloud-based offering. Do you have kind of a common misconception that usually comes right up with most customers that it's like the first thing you're like, well, this is going to be easy, and you immediately have to go kind of clean up that thought process? Is there like a, a baseline common misconception you see a lot of customers have as you try to ed educate them about your platform? Yeah, so, it, you know, the model that we're bringing to infrastructure management is, is relatively new, right? It, it, it doesn't mean it hasn't been done before, but the enterprise customers haven't quite seen this model uh, when it comes to management of their infrastructure. So they're always is a bit of education that we need to do with the customer. Um, at times, the questions are, is this cloud in the box, right? Meaning, do you also manage software and hardware? Um, and we tell them that ours is the, a software-only solution, um, which means you bring in your own hardware. Um, and that's really the benefit of this model, which is regardless of what hardware, what infrastructure you have within your environment, uh, which it could be uh, a bunch of Linux servers um, using your favorite operating system of choice because we support all major Linux distributions, or it could be an existing VMware vSphere deployment, which, uh, like you said, Brian, many times customers are not even aware that OpenStack can manage VMware, right? So we, we help break through that misconception. Uh, but essentially, um, we take what you have, we take your existing um, environments and we are, you know, brownfield deployments, and we are able to um, transform that into an OpenStack cloud. So from a customer perspective, it requires zero disruption, zero change. They don't need to stop their workloads or, uh, or, 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 or install a set of brand new operating systems or stacks or et cetera. Um, they take what they have and they transform that into OpenStack. Okay. And um, I mean, that makes a lot of sense to me. I appreciate that. So the other thing that we've mentioned a couple of times is Kubernetes, but we've really focused most of our conversation around OpenStack. Um, we've had great conversations on the podcast around Kubernetes. And um, so obviously I'm really curious here, 
one of your earlier comments was you looked at different container management opportunities and chose Kubernetes after your research. So I'm curious if there's um, some basis of thought around that, like why you, you chose Kubernetes over the other alternatives. Uh, and then I'd like to dig in a little bit into um, how people are leveraging Kubernetes with your platform. So first, why Kubernetes out of all the mm -hmm. options? Right. And so, you know, earlier this year, sort of late last year, we really started doing our, our research into what's that container management solution that Platform Line offers is going to be, right? And in, at that time, um, or in general, even today, when customers look at container management solutions, it's typically three, uh, three predominant players that they look at, right? Which is Kubernetes is one, um, Mesos is another, and, and then Docker's set of tools, Docker Swarm and Compose is the third one. Right, so those are the three obvious suspects, and and we took a detailed look at each one of them to identify the pros and cons, and 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 then figure out which we think is going to be the one container orchestration tool that rules them all, right? Which is the one that's going to gain the majority of mindshare and popularity because of its strengths. Um, and so when you evaluate um, open source frameworks such as these, from our perspective at least, you need to look at two or three critical parameters, right? One is, uh, you know, where that framework originated from or, um, you know, what are some of its trends or why we think it's going to be a significant player in, in the enterprise space. Um, and Kubernetes kind of shines in this area because it was started, uh, it was inspired by Google's fork, which uh, powers Google's bread and butter set of technologies today. Um, and hence, it has built in, into it some of the core principles of uh, what makes Google's internal um, engines or machinery work in, 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 in a you know, massively distributed, scalable way, right? And so customers, when they use Kubernetes today, they get to leverage a lot of that thought process, a lot of that good um, software design and engineering that has happened behind the scenes. Um, so that's one. Um, the second aspect is the community strength, right, which is really an open source framework shines when it gets a broad support from not just the vendor who started the framework, but a number of other popular vendors and hence uh, uh, the members of the community. Um, and Kubernetes is very significantly placed to be sort of leader in that area as well. Um, today, Kubernetes community is significantly backed by not just Google, but other major vendors uh, such as Red Hat, um, you know, parts of Microsoft and, and VMware, and um, and it has the backing of a number of um, well-known enterprise customers as well, which is the third factor, which is what's its current enterprise customer traction in terms of deployments running it in production at scale. And this is, again, the third part where Kubernetes shines. Um, it has customers such as Box, such as eBay, such as, um, you know, Barclays or Goldman Sachs or others who have publicly spoken about their use of Kubernetes. Um, and so from our perspective, all of these, you know, these three parameters and more, uh, you know, stacks up pretty significantly in favor of Kubernetes. Um, and so we felt strongly that that's going to be the container orchestration framework that's going to rule. Um, so it was sort of a no-brainer choice for us after after doing this evaluation. Um, and then the second aspect of that was how do you deliver Kubernetes, right? Um, because of our background with OpenStack, one of the alternative mo uh, deployment models we had was deploying Kubernetes using OpenStack Magnum, 
right? And, and OpenStack Magnum, for those of you not aware, um, is OpenStack's um, OpenStack's way of integrating with the popular uh, container orchestration frameworks um, and deploying them out of box at, through OpenStack using a combination of heat for orchestration of the framework and Neutron for networking and, and et cetera. Um, and there's pros and cons to the model, but in summary, from our perspective, we realized that um, complicating the stacks for, for a customer's perspective is, is not always a good thing. Meaning, if you're a customer who's only interested in Kubernetes, then you should just get the Kubernetes stack and you should be able to deploy it on top of bare metal or virtual machines or cloud, right? Meaning, um, you know, making OpenStack a requirement in that picture would be adding unnecessary complexity. Um, without good benefits to justify it. Um, and so we went with Kubernetes and we decided to deploy Kubernetes independent of OpenStack. Um, but for those customers who are looking to leverage both OpenStack and Kubernetes, there are a significant set of advantages to be had because you can leverage some of the core OpenStack services such as Keystone, such as Cinder, such as Neutron as auxiliary services that can, that can provide some value added uh, features to Kubernetes. So you, you mentioned kind of like um, can run them together, could also mm -hmm. choose to completely run them mutually exclusive or choose one or the other, uh, you know, to uh, frankly simplify if you don't need one or the other. Um, since we, we like to dig, uh, Brent found a tweet of yours um, that uh, actually it was re you retweeted it that said that 47% of OpenStack users use Kubernetes and 31% of them were in production already. Uh, didn't write down who the retweet was from, but... You know, that seems like a really interesting argument, right? That somebody is, um, you know, kind of standardized on some sort of uh, infrastructure as a service. And then on top of that, 30% of those people are have also standardized on Kubernetes in order to do their container management. Um, so I don't know, you know, best friends, if they're peas in a pod or whatever, is there, you know, what's your thought process on the two of these together? And is there a nesting function that makes them better together? So absolutely, and, and you know that's the trend we significantly see through all of our conversations, regardless of the, whether they are our customers or not, right? Which is um, a majority of OpenStack users are, uh, are are definitely evaluating different container orchestration frameworks, and in, in a large part of them are choosing Kubernetes as their container orchestration framework of choice. Um, in, in, in from our perspective. The way it makes sense, right, is that um, you know if you think of OpenStack, it's this distributed open source orchestration framework that makes your um, that that lets you deliver um, virtual machines as a service in a way, right? Which is it 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 delivers the storage part, the networking portion, the the authentication portion, um, etc., as a service to make that uh, infrastructure as a service cloud really easy to deliver on on infrastructure of your choice um, and. Kubernetes is evolving to be a very similar framework. Uh, so Kubernetes has focus on storage, focus on networking, focus on all aspects of delivering that container as a service model, right? And delivering it on infrastructure of your choice. Um, and because of the nature of containers, uh, Kubernetes makes it easy to do that, not just on private infrastructure, but on public cloud as well. Um, so it fundamentally makes sense that the OpenStack customers, um, uh, Kubernetes resonates well with OpenStack customers because Ultimately, at a higher level, they're looking to achieve the same, some of the same goals um, using these two powerful frameworks. Um, and then we see a number of benefits of deploying them together, 
right? And to give you specific examples, Kubernetes today does not have an out-of-box story for how you would do your authentication authorization, for example. It, 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 it's a very pluggable model, so it lets you plug in your appropriate authentication or authorization service or tool of choice. Um, but that's where we see OpenStack Keystone fitting in really well. Um, and the benefit of that is Keystone has already done that work of integrating with your all of your uh, you know identity providers of choice, such as Okta or um, LDAP or uh, Active Directory or others. And by leveraging Keystone for Kubernetes there, you get to use, um, leverage all of that work that has happened before. That's one. Um, Multi-tenancy is another one where Kubernetes has the notion of namespaces, but it hasn't been fully solidified in terms of an enterprise customer being able to create these separate silos which are which are different tenants and then allocating them codas etc and we think leveraging keystone again in this area makes a lot of sense right so if you are a customer who are deploying both openstack and kubernetes together you get a ton of benefits um a you get unified multi-tenancy which can span across your infrastructures across your clouds so you get to define one set of tenants and allocate some capacity to them that's virtualized some capacity that's containerized and that could be spread across private and public cloud, um, so which really helps in setting standardized policies and having standardized APIs. Um, and that's just one example, right? There are other benefits in bringing Cinder uh, storage management to Kubernetes for persistent volume management, or where relevant, uh, bringing some of the Neutron aspects for networking, isolated networking as well. So, um, so in an in a nutshell, the two together is um, you know is greater than greater than one plus one equal to two, right? That that's really the model. So uh, very early on in the podcast, you mentioned enterprises are extremely risk averse, uh, and primarily, you know, they just don't like science projects because uh, it has it you know essentially puts the the enterprise at risk, right? So you take you do something like put in the newest version, um, and if you don't if something in your business doesn't demand the feature don't do it because it has risk involved. Um, so specifically, and the reason I'm asking this is specifically around Kubernetes, uh, we looked at your service and it says it's still in beta. Now, is it, first of all, is it still in beta? Correct. Okay. It's in beta yeah, that's great. And so, uh, they, I mean, some, it has to go through beta at some point, especially if it's okay. new. Um, what do you advise your enterprise customers in the uh, situation where you have something that's a really good service like Kubernetes, um, that Kubernetes as a whole is fairly standardized and fairly, you know, solid from a business perspective right now, yet mm -hmm. you're kind of in a beta uh, from your perspective of how you manage it. So what's your feedback to enterprises and how do you ask them to adopt this given, you know, enterprise risk and things like that? Right. And so, you know, the, from Platform Line's perspective, there is the core set of features or benefits that an open source framework that offers, right, which is Kubernetes or OpenStack. Um, and then there is a whole bunch of value added benefits or services that we provide on top through our as a service model. Um, and, and, and from our perspective, it's really those those added benefits that we provide uh, that are on top um, that need to go through their own set of um, release cycles and evolution and stabilization, et cetera, before we consider them generally available. And so when we reference that our managed Kubernetes is in beta, uh, that's really what we mean. Um, it's not that the Kubernetes as a stack is currently in beta because um, you know that that's sort of independent. Um, and Kubernetes has a lot of validations uh, or proof points in terms of large enterprise customers running it today in production, right, which we leverage and provide to our customers uh, as a way to justify why Kubernetes is the right stack to start standardizing on. Um, but what Platform Line does is we provide a number of 
added benefits on top, right? A, we create a fully automated managed Kubernetes deployment um, that gets monitored, um, uh, updated, upgraded in a fully automated manner, right? So when I say monitoring, for example, our um, automated software, which internally we call our whistleblower service, um, is constantly monitoring the health of your internal systems, right? And it's doing that by tracking metrics and, and data from various set of sources. It, it'll be parsing through the Kubernetes logs. It'll be uh, pulling the Kubernetes APIs for errors. And it, it looks at a whole bunch of metrics to determine their overall health. And then it's designed to file tickets on your behalf um, in an automated way again when it detects uh, with a certain confidence that there are certain anomalies that either you need to be taken care of or our team needs to be taken care of because it might be a bug, um, say a software bug. And so that's an example of a value-added service that we provide, right? Another one um, is performing these completely automated upgrades. Now, Kubernetes comes out with a major version every four months or so, uh, so it's even more frequent than the major versions of OpenStack, for example, uh, and in really delivering a fully automated rolling upgrade uh, to your clusters, which again tends to be a big challenge if you did it on your own, right? That's another example of something we offer out of the box. Um, so that's, that, uh, you know, in a nutshell, uh, that that added stack that lets you run Kubernetes in production from, from Platform 9. Um, and that stack is currently in beta, but uh, but scheduled to go become generally available very soon. Cool. So uh, I wanted to kind of dig into, you know, you've got a solutions tab on, on your website. We're not going to mm -hmm. dig into all of those. Uh, we just don't have the time. Um, but I think the ones that are probably the most important um, are are infrastructure cost reduction, right? So it says on there up to 70% cheaper than public cloud. And I mean, we all, I think we all know that public cloud isn't necessarily cheaper, but it's it's agile, right? So um, talk to us about how you can actually, you know, you do that in a, in a, in a software as a service world and with, uh, you know, kind of uh, bring your own hardware. And then also how you can um, still be agile, right? People are going to public cloud because it's super fast, Super easy to deploy and super agile. So, how quickly can you do it, and how um, how are you achieving you know the, these cost reductions? Right, uh, and, and you made a very critical distinction, Brent. Right, which is um, there tends to be again this notion that customers go to public cloud because it's the cheapest option available, and there 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 have now been enough data points that indicate otherwise. Um, but in summary, um, customers or startups uh, go to public cloud not because it's cheaper, but it because it's the most efficient or agile way of getting infrastructure. Um, and so in the Bay Area, in the Silicon Valley, but in general, you see the trend where new companies get started. Public cloud is absolutely the right place for them to get started on, right? Nothing else makes sense from ROI perspective. But as they start growing rapidly, um, start building revenue, and hence their public cloud footprint increases, um, there comes a point where your infrastructure spend starts going, say, uh, annually above a million dollars or so, or, or at per uh, per month basis above, uh, say, 250k or so. That's really when that enterprise, uh, you know, that that software company, that startup starts taking a very hard look at uh, what's my enterprise uh, infrastructure. And so when you reach that point. That's where looking at a, an as-a-service model as an alternative uh, for for going not all public but going to more of a hybrid approach um, can result in a significant amount of cost savings to you. 
right? And we have a public um, uh, case study from one of our uh, uh, customers, Pubmatic, to be specific, um, who have achieved that greater than 70% uh, percent in um, in cost savings by doing that. In, the, in their specific case, they went from going all public, which is what they had, to about... Uh, 80% or so, and the, the, the specifics might be a bit weak here, uh, of, of uh, private or co-location hosted infrastructure, which is all Linux KVM servers distributed in co-locations across the world. Uh, and they still retain that, that significant but small percentage of infrastructure still in the public cloud. And then they paired that with platform lines managed approach, which is um, uh, essentially private or hybrid cloud as a service using OpenStack and Kubernetes. Um, in, 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 in the way they achieved those cost savings doing that is in two ways, right? One, uh, by going to an all co-location hosted infrastructure, they were paying fixed cost for their hardware instead of having to pay the variable cost, the per instance cost, which really tends to hit you in a big way with a public cloud. If you're not doing your cost management, your instance uptime management, et cetera, right, which requires a lot of tooling to do that. Um, so by going private, you're paying fixed cost for infrastructure, uh, but then the, the big tax tends to be your ops team or, or the team that you need to deploy to manage and maintain that infrastructure while still delivering the SLA. And that's the problem that Platform Line solves for them. Um, so their ops team literally is, is likely of the size of anywhere between two to three ops engineers who are maintaining and looking at that infrastructure and looking at the OpenStack plus Kubernetes stack, um, which tends to be a huge deal maker or, or difference maker for customers. And that's where a combination of two results in you saving um, a lot of money, both in, in CapEx and OpEx. Okay, so um, you know, I think the, the argument already has has been made regarding uh, virtualization, right? So the 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 usage of the old, the the underlying hardware. Where do you where do you see your your customers generally sitting in terms of resource utilization and of their of their hardware stack? Yeah, no, and good question. And many times. The you know there's a couple of problems that large scale enterprises run into right there is infrastructure sprawl there is tool sprawl and there is because of a combination of these there is lack of visibility right which is I today if I'm the uh, say the director of IT of a large scale uh, enterprise company I likely do not even have the data that tells me across these ten data centers that I have that are spread across geography, this is my overall utilization. This is how all of my servers are doing, and hence these are these five uh, hotspots are my opportunities of consolidating more um, and, and leveraging my hardware better. Right. So the first thing Platform Line does out of the box, the moment you drop in a Platform Line agent on your infrastructure or an appliance in case of VMware integration, um, the first thing that it does is it pops up a dashboard and it instantly gives you a bird's eye perspective into all of your infrastructure and your current utilization allocation status with respect to that. Right. So if you did nothing else with Platform Line, just this will start adding a lot of value to you. Um, and so that then tells you that my Palo Alto data center is over allocated, but I have capacity in my EMEA sort of uh, servers, et cetera. And so it gives you the opportunity to act on it. And that's really where OpenStack through its automated policy driven uh, placement engine um, lets you leverage that infrastructure better by setting your allocation ratios and in your utilization ratios appropriately. So you can you make better use of that capacity. Okay. And, and let's talk about 
agile elasticity, right? Which is another tenant of cloud, right? It's just it's there, it's ready to provision. How are you solving for that challenge uh, in a platform nine world? So, you know, agile elasticity is, is is kind of a high level term, right? And there's many ways to kind of slice and dice it. It also depends on the specific use cases that you're running as an organization, right? Meaning if you are running majority production workloads, for example, to satisfy your customer base, then being agile means for you being able to burst and have or leverage that additional pool of capacity when you have those yearly or monthly bursts at a certain period of time, where you know when those bursts are coming, but you don't want to dedicate a large pool of infrastructure just waiting for that burst to happen, right? So being able to do that is agile for you. Um, on the other hand, if you're running mostly a dev test development QA kind of organization, then providing the right set of automation and tool set to your engineers where they can spin up 10 VMs or 15 VMs uh, in a minute and they could test what they needed to and destroy them five minutes later and an and hour later do the same thing again, uh, giving them the tools so that they can do that is being agile, right? And and, and and having them file tickets and then responding to to those tickets in hours or days is the opposite of agile. Um, sure. So OpenStack plus Kubernetes is really that infrastructure layer um, that, that lets you do both. Right, um, and what we do is we let our customers deliver these stacks to their end users, um, and then we take the pain of delivering these to to their end users. Right, so um, you know from bursting perspective, you can throw in um, public cloud capacity, and you can do that now with OpenStack with our most recent announcement that we did at the OpenStack Barcelona stomach uh, summit, where we announced OpenStack Omni, which is a way for OpenStack to manage not just private infrastructure but public infrastructure. So that gives you that instant burstability. Um, so you can leverage your public cloud for deploying some of your production workloads during a certain period of time. Um, and then, um, you know, for developers or, 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 or QA folks, et cetera, it's really that, that benefit of having those, those cloud management APIs, right? The OpenStack REST APIs and the CLIs um, and all the public cloud goodness that OpenStack brings out of the box lets you achieve that, that level of automation. No, that's very cool. So Omni was... You said it was just announced at Barcelona. Is it is it um, in beta? Is it uh, how how is that? Is it actually fully baked into, um, I guess, into the OpenStack distro? Right. So Omni was announced, as you said, as part of the Barcelona summit uh, in November. Um, it's a fully open sourced effort, and and the goal is to make OpenStack that hybrid cloud, true hybrid cloud management platform, right? So to let it manage not just private infrastructure, but the most popular public clouds of your choice. So we started by building drivers for AWS. Um, which is the most popular public cloud today. But our goal is that the community starts embracing this and starts adding drivers for the other popular public clouds, such as Azure and GCE and, and SoftLayer and et cetera. Um, and so this effort, um, uh, you know, is 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 in the form of a set of blueprints and a GitHub repository today. The work is underway, uh, and my team is uh, dedicating resources to it to to make this into a certified OpenStack project, right? So that the drivers, uh, the components, will be part of OpenStack Big Tent, um, and the community really starts embracing it as well. Um, Platform Nine is starting to offer this capability out of box, starting our next update release, which is coming out by around mid uh, uh, mid November to end November or so. Um, but uh, this is really an open source effort, right? So the goal is every OpenStack user gets to leverage this. That's awesome. 
So there's a couple other things, as you mentioned. I'm actually curious about this, so we'll just go ahead and do it. And you say, you know, you create a project, and then everybody else in OpenStack gets to use it, which is obviously one of the key tenets of open source in general. Um, in going through your solutions, we were looking at your multi-hypervisor management, and one of the statements was the only OpenStack distro with 100% vSphere interoperability. So mm. curious how you can say that, and then curious... Is that something you've given back as well, and you're just waiting for it to be integrated into the, you know, the, the, the basis or the, you know, the core of OpenStack, or what's going on there? Right, absolutely. And then, you know, this is where having spent uh, those years working with VMware customers um, really helps us, right? Meaning, if you are a VMware enterprise customer who spent past 10 years building that vSphere environment, you have a ton of context and ton of data built in terms of those uh, templates, uh, those virtual machine instances that your end users are using today, your networks, etc. Uh, and if someone came in tomorrow and said, you can do OpenStack with your environment and you can put OpenStack on top of VMware, but in order to do that, you have to rip and replace everything you have today and start with complete greenfield. Um, that's not going to fly, right? That That's going to be a huge challenge to achieve because uh, those existing deployments have a lot of stickiness. And so what we built by enhancing those vSphere drivers for OpenStack is the ability to be bi-directional um, for those drivers. So what I mean by that is when you deploy the set of drivers with Top of Line Managed OpenStack, um, the first thing that they do is we discover your existing environment, including your virtual machines, your templates, your networks, et cetera, and we register them and make them part of OpenStack. So if you were the end user, today you had all those VMs running on vCenter. Um, in a matter of minutes after deploying Platform 9, you see all of them now within OpenStack. And then you can click a few buttons and say, these five VMs belong to this tenant, and these 10 VMs belong to this tenant in OpenStack. So you transparently, non-destructively layer the OpenStack constructs such as multi-tenancy and others. And now, once you've done that, tomorrow you can tell all your users saying, hey, you were using this portal to file tickets today, or you were going to vCenter directly today. Use this portal starting tomorrow. You have all your existing VMs. They've not gone away. You have your existing templates that you've been used to using. Uh, just use this new tool because it's going to make your life better. right? And, and that bi-directionality comes from us treating the hypervisor as the source of truth, which is your ESX hypervisor or your clusters. And that has one more added benefit, which is if someone was to go directly at vCenter layer and perform some operations, such as, say, turn on VMware HA or migrate some VMs to other cluster because they had to do some maintenance, OpenStack is going to out-of-box recognize all of those changes and and, and and work with them. And it's not going to create a disruption or, or a problem with your management layer, which is OpenStack, which is, again, a huge benefit because not all vCenter APIs or operations are exposed through OpenStack. Right, so that's that's what we mean by being a truly interoperable solution or platform that works with vSphere. Um, now, when it comes to open sourcing it, the effort is underway to make this all fully part of OpenStack. Right, um, you know, in general, our philosophy is every auxiliary work that we do to better a framework such as OpenStack or Kubernetes as well uh, that we uh, contribute to the community. Because our focus is in that seamless as a service delivery of the frameworks, not in creating a specialized distribution. So you're not planning on uh, open sourcing the secret sauce of your uh, cloud orchestration model is what you're saying? 
So, you know, never say never, right? Um, but at this point, you know, that that's part of the core that you get um, with Platform 9. And essentially, the way we've built it, it's independent of any specific framework, right? So it's not specific to OpenStack or it's not specific to Kubernetes. It's a model. Uh, we call it the Lego model in, internally, but it's a way where you can plug in the right framework and, and really start performing a whole bunch of these benefits of monitoring it, troubleshooting it, filing tickets, um, and then doing updates and upgrades, etc. Um, so that that's our core. And that is not open source at this point, correct? Awesome. So another thing that it looks like, and again, you know, help me clarify this as we were reading, uh, there was also a recent announcement around a a VMware-like HA experience for OpenStack that looks like, again, something that uh, Platform 9 delivered and is offering to customers, and then it, you prob- it sounds like you'll probably give that back or have already done so. Correct, so, yes. Go ahead and tell me about that. So we announced this about um, three-plus months or so ago, um, and, and it is at this point fully open-sourced. The GitHub repository is available for anyone um, to download and utilize this with their OpenStack deployment today. Um, and, and, you know, the the goal for doing that was really um, is reinterface with um, OpenStack or, or enterprise customers. And a and, and large subset of them tend to be um, existing VMware customers who are either looking to deploy OpenStack on top of VMware or they're looking to create a separate KVM-based environment. Uh, but they've still love all that, uh, you know, the, the enterprise-grade features that VMware has offered to them over years, right? And, 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 and if, if I were to name two specific features that VMware customers absolutely rely on and love, um, one of them is VMware DRS, which is the cluster management, and the second one is VMware HA, right? Um, and, and using those two solutions, enterprise customers are able to deliver a certain level of SLA. Um, now, OpenStack always had a very powerful placement engine, which is equivalent to VMware DRS, which let you do automated placements, not just on a single cluster of resources, but across that diverse pool of resources that you might have spread across geography, right? So it always did that job better in many ways. Um, what we did is we, um, you know, we we took the existing high availability solution that was available in OpenStack, which was another open source project, which is called Masakari. Uh, and then we, uh, we focused on enhancing it. So we integrated um, Consul, which is the uh, open source kind of gossip-based protocol, which essentially brings a level of um, high availability and resiliency um, in, in building that HA solution, right? So essentially the way it works is we leverage the OpenStack open availability zone concept. Um, so you use the construct of availability zones or host aggregates to create a cluster of servers. Um, and, and, and then um, you enable HA feature for that cluster. And once you do that, then every new virtual machine that gets placed on that cluster would be monitored through this machinery behind the scenes um, for its uptime and availability. And when the system detects that it's down, either because the server went down or through some other issues, then it's able to restart that virtual machine on another server within that cluster. And we didn't stop at that. We also added uh, not just VMHA, but we also added application HA. Um, and what that means is that when you're deploying a multi-tier uh, scale-out application, then uh, what becomes more important to you is not if an individual virtual machine is down because you're able to tolerate the downtime of an individual virtual machine, but what's important to you is that tier, uh, which might consist of three or four scale-out instances for that application, is distributed or spread across availability zones or across failure domains, 
Um, and that's another capability that we enable so that you're able to set these policies of spreading that application across your failure domain. So if one of them or two of them go down, your application as a whole is still up and running and the system will restart those instances behind the scenes to give you that SLI. So from from my perspective, as I hear you, you have a lot of really interesting and key differentiators around your OpenStack um, software release. Uh, but then you also have really good and, in, in, you know, interesting key differentiators around your cloud infrastructure as a service um, orchestration, you know, piece, right? You're, you're essentially your, your cloud-based infrastructure as a service management, you know, so they seem mm-hmm. uh, related, but completely separate. So um, first of all, can you just, can we come get platform nine OpenStack and have a really good OpenStack experience without the rest? And then also, how do you really differentiate yourselves in the marketplace? Is it both together is the platform nine experience or is either or still a great experience for your customers? Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and um, you know, addressing the first, um, again, we, we're not here to create a specialized distribution of any one of the open source frameworks, right, such as OpenStack or Kubernetes, et cetera, and hence the focus on any 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 work that we do in, in, in specific area for a framework, there is, there is focus on contributing that back um, because that's the only way it, it will become mainstream and our customers will benefit and we will benefit that way as well. Um, and so when you take the Platform 9 um, OpenStack distribution, for example, apart from the cloud-managed aspect, which really makes your life fundamentally easier and lets you consume that, there is also focus on making sure it's packaged right and it's tested um, uh, for the the various combinations that we support so that you're not caught with surprises when you actually start consuming those components. Because with open source, again, there's a challenge of uh, what it's promised to be working and what actually works. Right. And when you have this powerful platform such as OpenStack or Kubernetes, it's a Swiss Army knife, right? Meaning the the power uh, really comes in configuring it appropriately, setting the right configuration parameters and the right the maxes and mins on your message queues and other things, et cetera, so, so that you're able to deliver that experience. Um, and that's also what you get with Platform 9, right? Um, but hands down, when it comes to differentiation in the marketplace, it, it's really that SLA around the lifecycle management of your OpenStack or Kubernetes that we provide, which is behind the scenes, it's a combination of everything we mentioned. But from your perspective, you know that you don't need to build that 10 people or 15 people team of OpenStack ninjas and then uh, double that by building the team of Kubernetes ninjas because now you're adding another stack to your portfolio tomorrow. You rely on your partner which is platform nine to have the right skill set to just take care of it for you and, and deliver it with with an sli cool well you said ninjas so i'm guessing that's the new term the new cool term for uh, ponytails ponytails is probably out right phds and ponytails now it's uh, phds <laughs> and uh, throwing stars <laughs> <laughs> well, cool. So, you know, we're coming, uh, we've kind of got gone over our hour, but uh, that said, you know, we try to be as comprehensive as possible on these things. Have we missed any key tenants of Platform 9? And if not, then we'll kind of shut this down. No, yeah, you know, so 
the core of what really gets us excited or what we're passionate about is being um, what we like to call open source as a service, right? And now that's a very broad term. But what we really mean by that is our focus is and is going to continue to be taking the right open source frameworks and, and, and building open source frameworks if, if if they don't exist, right? And then delivering them to customers as a service. Um, so we started by doing that with OpenStack. We now have Kubernetes. Um, the team um, is doing some really exciting work in the serverless area. Uh, so expect us to start making some announcements around that over the upcoming weeks or months or so. Um, and that's another um, kind of buzz areas in a way, but if you if you do a simple trend mapping of um, of AWS Lambda, right, and if you compare that to something like Kubernetes or other frameworks, Lambda is just through the roof, right? And the Google trends uh, are, are not even a comparison to the, the trends for some of these frameworks. And what that tells you is that there is a tremendous amount of interest um, in, 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 you know, functions as a service or serverless uh, as a trend. Um, and, and we believe that that's going to be that next level of evolution um, for enterprise infrastructure structure consumption. So, so expect us to be doing something interesting again in the open source realm in that area. Um, but that's really what Platform 9 is about, which is uh, taking the powerful open source frameworks and then delivering them as a service. Cool. So thank you for using functions as a service when you talk about serverless, because serverless just freaks people out. <laughs> but um, anyway, so we talked about um, you know, you presenting at Google headquarters on December 7th, um, but that's on your behalf, probably not necessarily about Platform 9, but um, where can we find you, your team next, right? We just, we heard you guys were at uh, OpenStack Summit Barcelona. Um, what's next for you guys and where can people seek you out? Absolutely. So we tend to participate in a lot of these uh, popular events uh, in the in enterprise infrastructure space, right? So the, the next place to find us at is AWS reInvent. Um, it's coming up around end of November. We're really, really excited about it. Um, we're planning on making some exciting announcements prior to that. So stay tuned for that. And uh, do reach out to us at our booth. Uh, and then let's have conversations about containers and serverless and, and uh, OpenStack. Cool. And you have Twitter, as so does Platform9. Tell us how people can contact you specifically. Absolutely. So my Twitter handle is Medura Miskaski, my full name, no space. Um, uh, you know, always happy to receive any kind of feedback, questions, specifically about OpenStack or about uh, Platform9 or Kubernetes or, or all of the interest areas for me or us, right? So DM me or follow me. And then Platform9's Twitter handler, handle is Platform9sys. Um, again, one word, and we're always more than happy to hear from everyone and anyone. Yeah, and then Platform 9 has uh, its own GitHub. Um, there's a blog. Any any YouTube channels like with videos and things like that so customers can get familiar with the product? Absolutely. So we have all of them. So our website, platform9.com, uh, is that single place to find our blog channel, which is blogs.platform9.com, and then our YouTube channel as well. And we keep publishing latest videos for all our different product announcements and other exciting things on our YouTube channel. So that's another really good way of learning about Platform 9 and what's upcoming. Very cool. So um, very, very smart woman. Uh, how... We like to ask all of our, our guests this, but what books are you reading to either stay ahead of the curve in in technology or your industry, or maybe just something that's completely irrelevant to the industry and just something that you'd like to throw out there as a, as a great book for leadership or something to that effect? 
right so the you know the the books that i am reading currently are all um in marathi that's my mother tongue and in these are books that let me completely switch context and and think and talk about the culture that i leave behind in some ways but that's really core cool to me um and so um but, you know I don't think those books are going to be interesting to our audience. Well, one specific one I've been reading is Rarangadhang, which is a, which is an interesting talks about an interesting challenge of conquering some of these massive mountains in 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 the the Himalayan and the mountain areas of India and building roads in them. Um, and the reason I really like that book is because it talks about this. Uh, this channel challenge and really strategic way of approaching it uh, and, and navigating around it and then the massive benefit that that's received when you do that which is the indian army or or the locals are able to commute in a very seamless way right so i can draw a lot of analogies out of that um but some of the other interesting um you know books that i try to read are any kind of a biography of of people that i respect and follow so the steve jobs uh, biography is something that was a lot of interest to me as well as the the amazon book the everything store uh, there was a lot of controversy about it but but i really loved that book because it helped me understand some of the inner workings um of the the mastermind which is jeff bezos um and so that that's the type of books i typically read very cool thank you for those recommendations so um to all of our listeners out there let us know what you're what you're uh, wanting to learn about. I mean, Brian, as Brian said, he saw these guys uh, platform nine at uh, VMworld, and if you're at trade shows and you see someone that you're interested in in learning more about, we'd love to uh, get your recommendations. So get social with us. Let us know uh, what you want to learn more about, and we'll try to get them on the show. But with that, we're going to shut down the hot aisle for today. So uh, Madura, thank you very much for your time. And with that, I'm Brent Piotti, and I'm Brian Carpenter. Madura, thanks again. Thank you, folks. Thanks, Brent. Thanks, Brian.